0: to be doing a series where we've been talking with the preaching team, and over the next year or so, we're going to be doing a series out of Mark, Mark's Gospel, and I've called this, I'd like to call this, A Portrait of Jesus, this whole series, and I'll tell you why in a short while, but uh, about seven years ago, I did begin to do a um, uh, series on Mark, which we never stopped, I mean, we we never finished, rather, and so um, I really feel excited to to kind of. Have a look at Mark again, and and I really trust it's going to inspire you as we seek to be outward-focused this next year, and we want to see many people saved. And I think um, this is going to be a very helpful process as we look at Mark's gospel. And I've called the series A Portrait of Jesus because I want you to, as we begin, just keep this thought in your mind that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they are portraits of Jesus. They are not biographies of Jesus. All right? That's very important to understand. It's like Mark is a painter, and he has a picture of Jesus in his mind, and he is painting a picture of Christ. And in the same way, Matthew does the same. It's his interpretation, his view of Christ in that sense. And so when we look at the, the, the Gospels together, they are not biographies. If, if they were biographies, they would have things in identical order. They would say ex- exactly the same things in terms of the timing of different events. But the Gospels are not that. The, they have been known over history as the synoptic Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, together are called synoptic Gospels. And, and that comes from a Greek word, two Greek words, which means to put together. And so the, the, the idea is, as you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see a different perspective from Mark's perspective and Matthew's perspective and uh, Luke's, uh, Ma, uh, Luke's perspective, giving you a slightly different uh, picture of who Christ is. is. Is that clear? And so it's possible to argue that Mark is perhaps the most important gospel, and why I say that is because it's the earliest of the gospels. It was written around AD 65. Um, And uh, it's a remarkable story of of Jesus' life, and it's been handed down to us. And so, what is fascinating to kind of consider as we look at all three together this morning, just as an introduction, is that there's a remarkable similarity between the three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Um, And so, for example, if you were to compare some of the well-known stories So, for example, the feeding of the 5,000 that happens in Mark's chapter 6 or Matthew chapter 14 or Luke chapter 9, it's almost exactly the same uh, in terms of the the same words, and it's told in exactly the same way. The same is true of the story of the hearing of the, the paralytic in Mark 2, Matthew 9, and Luke 5. And there are lots of stories that are almost identically the same in all three of those Gospels. And as a result of that, we are forced to make one of... Two conclusions: either all three of the gospels were using a common source that they all extracted from, or one of the gospels is the basis for the other two. And uh, my conviction is that Mark is the basis of the the Gospel of um, Luke and the Gospel. Of Matthew. And if you look at various little other examples that I'm going to give you, there are 105 sections in in Mark, if you divide up the original writing of those 105 sections. 93 of them occur again in Matthew, and 81 of them occur again in Luke. So there's a remarkable consistency in terms of those three Gospels. Even more compelling than that, Mark has a total of 661 verses, Matthew has 1,068. Luke has 1,149. Of Mark's 661 verses, Matthew uses 606 of them. Luke reproduces 320. And as a result, there's only 24 verses used in Mark that are not used somewhere in Matthew and in Luke. And so it very much looks like, and this is my conviction, that Mark was used as the basis for both Matthew and Luke's gospel. And so Matthew and Luke, they follow the same order of, of uh, events in Jesus' life. And it's really thrilling to know that as we're reading this gospel of Mark, we are really reading the earliest account of Jesus' life that we have uh, handed over to us. Uh, I love John chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Out of Christ's fullness we all receive... And so it's as we begin to see these different pictures of Jesus, and we know how He lived and He walked and what He did, uh, and that He's alive today through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that promise in Hebrews 13:8 8, that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we, as we read this gospel, it becomes a real thing in our lives. We can see exactly His power, His authority, His healing. And most important of all, we can see what His death and resurrection meant for us. He's alive today. He's real today. And each of the Gospels paint a different picture for us, a different portrait for us of who Jesus is in in our lives today. So that's just a little introduction in terms of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John is a little bit different, so that's why I'm putting the synoptic Gospels together. But let's just consider for a moment who Mark was, all right? Who was Mark? Well, we actually know quite a lot about Mark. Um, He was a a son of a well-to-do family. Uh, His mom was a lady called Mary, and they really had one of the earliest Christian communities in Jerusalem, and we know that from Acts chapter 12. Um, If you remember, Peter was thrown into jail, and he had this miraculous escape from jail. An angel came and opened the gate, and he walked out of the jail. And it says in verse 12 of Acts uh, Acts chapter 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark where Mary, many were gathered together and were praying. And so there was this guy, son of Mary, called John Mark, who was part of the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. And so at the very foundation of his life, Mark is being raised in Christian fellowship. We know, too, that he's the nephew of Barnabas. Everyone remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement? And Barnabas and Paul traveled together, and John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Of, of Barnabas, and he went on their first missionary journey as their secretary, as their attendant, as their gopher, if you like. And um, it says, we know that from Acts 13, verse 13 says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. So John Mark is the same, very same person that we read of in Acts 12, Acts 13, he returns with Barnabas and Saul. But it doesn't seem to have been a very happy missionary journey for John Mark, because uh, as you read in Acts, as you read through the story of Paul's first missionary journey, you see when they leave Paphos and they reach a place called Pamphylia. If you can just think of Turkey, all of those you have been on holiday to Turkey, the province called Antalya today is where Paul ended up. Alright, so just if you've been on to Turkey, that's where he was headed. And he got there, and he wanted to go towards the central plateau and go on his missionary journey. But for some reason, John Mark gave up at this point and went home. And we don't really know what that reason was, but we know that from Acts 13.13. Perhaps people have said, perhaps because he was a young man, he got scared because it was one of the most difficult places to travel in the ancient world. Um, Maybe he went home because it was becoming clear that the primary leadership role was now going to be Paul and not Barnabas, his uncle. So maybe he kind of thought, well, uh, this, uh, I'm not going to get on so well with Paul or whatever it was, that he felt Barnabas was being sidelined by Paul. And uh, it's interesting, I was reading, there's a church father called John Chrysostom, who wrote in the fourth century, and he says that um, Mark simply went home because he was homesick. In fact, he uses this phrase, and he says Mark was missing his mother, and so he went home. So maybe that's true. Maybe he was a young man who was missing his mom. He wanted some home cooking. He was tired of traveling, so he he left the the group, and he went back to Jerusalem to be with his mom. But we know that um, that was a problem for Paul because when Paul goes out on his his second missionary journey, uh, Paul doesn't really want to take John Mark with him. And so we read in Acts 15, uh, in verse 37, it says, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them, But Paul thought it best not to take him with, as he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement between them, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So here we see on the second missionary journey, There's such a sharp disagreement over John Mark that they split. Barnabas goes one way, Paul goes the other. And it seems so serious that they didn't really work together in the same way um, that we can tell from church history. Uh, And actually, it's interesting that church church tradition says that uh, Mark went down to Alexandra, to the north north of Africa in, in Egypt, and he founded a church there. But we're not quite sure if that is true or not. But that's what church church tradition says, is that Mark went down to the north of Africa and planted a church. But we do read of Mark once more. And if you remember our study of Colossians, anyone remember Colossians that we finished recently? Remember Paul's in prison in Rome? And right at the end of his life in Colossians 4, Paul says this in verse 10. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so here at the end of Paul's ministry, there seems to have been, we don't know how it happened, but there seems to be a reconciliation. John Mark, who he didn't want to, with him on his second missionary journey, is now with him, visiting him in prison. And I, I think that's a pretty cool thing, that uh, God managed somehow to bring these men together again Um And there was reconciliation. In some of the other letters, Philemon, for example, Paul says of Mark, he is one of my fellow workers, in verse 24. And so when he's at the very end of his life waiting for his death, he writes to Timothy, and he says this of of Mark again in 2 Timothy verse 4, Luke is with me. Get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. Isn't that amazing? So there's this amazing reconciliation. that ha- And I find that encouraging because uh, in my life, I've had some uh, situations with different people, and there hasn't been reconciliation. And uh, the, the, the great joy to me is that still in Christ, there can be reconciliation that one day we can be drawn together again. Amen? And so this is um, the wonderful story of John Mark. And uh, it's just kind of to paint a picture of who he was and what he did And how we know about Him. And the third little thing that I'd like to just uh, continue as an introduction this morning to make you aware of is uh, how did Mark get his information? Where did he get it from? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the value of any story, the value of anything written down depends on the quality of the sources of information. If you study history, you have to check out your sources. You must know that what you're saying is accurate. So how do we know about the information that Mark gets about the life of Jesus. Where does he get his information from? Well, I've already shown you that he was a part of a Christian family that was very much part of the early church in Jerusalem, was part of fellowship there. And it's most likely that people would have told stories about Jesus in that context. But it seems when we read Mark that it's more than that because Mark has incredible details that only an eyewitness would have seen themselves. And I'll point some of those out to you in a short while. And we know that Mark didn't follow Jesus himself he was too young, this is about AD 65, around there 60 years after Jesus died and was rose, rose again. So Mark himself is not the eyewitness, but he, he writes like an eyewitness. How is that possible? Where did he get his information from? And here, uh, there was a, uh, towards the end of the second century, there's a man called Papias who was a historian of the church, and he collected and he wrote down as much information about the early church that he could find. And he says this, he says that Mark's gospel was nothing more than the preaching record of Peter. He says it's the preaching of Peter collated by Mark and written down. And uh, we know that uh, Peter was very close to Mark because in 1 Peter 5 verse 13, he says of this, Peter says this of, of, of Mark, he calls him my son. My son Mark. And so there's this, this very close relationship between Peter and Mark. And this is what Papias uh, says. I'm quoting him now. He says Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, no, not in, in, in order, all that he recollected of what Jesus had said or done. For he was not a hearer of the Lord. Or a follower of of his, but he followed Peter. And I've said at a later date, Peter adapted the instructions to practical needs without any attempt to give the Lord's words systematically, so that Mark was not wrong in writing down things in this way from memory, for his one concern was neither to admit or falsify anything that he had heard. So Papias says Peter preached, Peter told the stories. Mark was the scribe he wrote down, all that he could remember to accurately write down the account that Peter, as an eyewitness, had of Jesus. And so this is very, very important because this is the earliest account, eyewitness account, uh, of Peter written down by Mark, um, and it's dated, like I said, AD 64, AD 65, and um, this was written down shortly after Peter died. Now, if you know your history, remember there was a great fire in Rome, and the emperor at the time was Nero. And what he did was he blamed the fire on the Christians, and basically a great persecution happened after that. And a third of uh, of Rome was burnt by the fire, and many, many Christians were slaughtered after that as a result of the persecution. And at that time, we know that Peter was killed. And we know that Paul was beheaded. About, about 64, 65 AD, uh, Peter was crucified upside down. That's what t- tradition says, that he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Christ. So he chose to be crucified upside down. And, and Paul, who was a Roman citizen, couldn't be crucified, and so he was beheaded. And both of those things happened um, in, the, in the reign of Nero. And so... This really, then, is very exciting to me because it's like we have the preaching notes of Peter who walked with Jesus, who was the one that Jesus said, on, on you I will build my church, on this revelation that you have that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And so it's very exciting to me that as we consider this gospel, it is the earliest account that we have of an eyewitness, Peter, talking about what Jesus did and how he lived and what he gave himself to. It's very exciting. And so... I want to just fourthly give you a couple of characteristics, and I want to encourage you as you do your devotions this, um, this month, that you start reading Mark, and as you read Mark, look out for these things, all right, it's, that will bring it to life for you. Like I said, the first thing is that it's an eyewitness account, and so it's the uh, closest thing that we have of a vivid, real recollection of Jesus um, written down by Mark. Second thing I'd like you to notice is this, that Mark never forgets the divine side of Jesus. It begins in Mark chapter 1. If you can just put it up, uh, please, the, the Scripture. Verse 1 simply says, The beginning of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so right from the very beginning, Mark is making us understand, absolutely clear that he has no doubt about who he believed Jesus was, all right? He's saying straight up front, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, and he focuses on the impact that Jesus had on the minds and the hearts of everyone that heard him. That is the main thrust of Mark. And there's always a sense of astonishment. There's a sense of awe right in the forefront of, of his mind when he thinks about and he writes about Jesus. And so in, in, in chapter 1 verse 22, you'll see this phrase, they were astounded at his teaching. Or in verse 27, they were all amazed. And these phrases, as you read Mark, you'll see they occur over and over and over again. There's a sense of awe, of wonder, of absolute amazement at Christ and who he was and what he did. And in, in, you know the amazing story in chapter four where he calms the storm and the, the, the Mark writes it down and he says, they were filled with great awe and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the, obeys, wind and the waves obey him? And that's one of the great themes that we're gonna look at and I hope that you will ask that question of yourself. Who is this? Jesus, who is this Jesus to me? What difference can he make to my life? What difference can he make to others as I proclaim him to other people? Who is this Christ? And so there's this inner in awe that is described by Mark in amazing ways. And in chapter 6, it says, uh, of verse 51 of Jesus, Mark uses this phrase. He says, They were utterly astounded. I trust that you will be utterly astounded as we look at a portrait of Jesus, that he will become more and more wonderful to you. That whatever you think you know about Jesus, he will become incredibly more wonderful this year as we look at this gospel together. And so that's the first thing that he emphasizes, the absolute divine side of Jesus. And the third thing I'd like you to, to notice, this picture that he paints, he paints a picture of Jesus as a human. We get a great understanding of Jesus the person as well as Jesus the Son of God. And uh, why do I say that? Because Mark gives us a very human picture of Jesus, and no other gospel describes the emotions that Jesus felt and the emotions that Jesus experienced. Uh, For example, in chapter 8, verse 12, there's this little phrase. It says of Jesus, He sighed deeply and said to them. It's like he's going, Oh, God. No other gospel does that. For example, in chapter 6, verse 34, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. Or in verse, chapter 6, verse 6, he was amazed at their unbelief. Or in chapter 3, he was moved to righteous anger. Mark's the only one who uses those kind of little phrases. He helps us see that Jesus experienced things as a, a, in an emotional way. in a a way that Matthew and Luke don't. And um, for example, also another example, remember the rich young ruler that that comes to him and says, I followed the law and I've done all these things. What do I do now to inherit the kingdom of God? Mark is the only one that says this, puts a little phrase in. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Mark's the only one who records that. Or it says in um, chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Jesus felt Mark says he felt the pangs of hunger. It's like he's, he's, he's watching Jesus go through hunger, and he describes it in that way, in a way that Matthew and Luke don't. It says also in verse of, um, uh, chapter 6, verse 31, that Jesus grew so tired and he wanted to rest. These little details that describe Jesus as a human who's going through all of these things that we experience, Mark is the only one who, who describes him in such detail. And so that brings me to my fourth little point that I've mentioned already, but I do want to mention again, is that this really is a book of eyewitness. It's a great characteristic of Mark. It's like Mark is there and he's seeing this for himself. And there's some beautiful examples where this just comes to life. You remember the story in... in, Of Jesus with the children, and when Matthew records it in Matthew 18, it simply says this in verse 2. It says, Jesus called a child to himself, and he put them in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew just giving us the facts. Yep, Jesus calls the children, says, You've got to become like these little children, right? Mark says it like this He says, Mark says, Jesus took the child into his arms. And he put them in the midst of them and he said, See, it's a little bit of detail, isn't it, that you don't get in Matthew? No, it's not just Jesus said this. He actually took the children into his arms and he held them. And once he had done that, he put them down and he said, You've got to become like these little children. It's beautiful, isn't it? And, um, with that little detail, the whole picture comes alive. And in fact, he says it again in Mark chapter 10. Again, when Jesus is surrounded by children, it's Mark is the one that describes it like this. He says he takes them into his arms, and he blesses them, and he lays his hands upon them, and he speaks to them. It's beautiful. Mark shows us not only Jesus, the Son of God, but Jesus, the man lives and talks and is like one of us. There's great tenderness in how he describes Jesus. There's also he's the only one who describes something of the loneliness of Jesus. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, uh, only Mark says of um, Jesus when they're on their last journey to Jerusalem, only Mark says Jesus walks ahead of them. And there's, in that little phrase, we get a sense of something of the loneliness of Jesus at that moment. He knew he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to his death. And he knew he could only do it by himself. And so there's this kind of separation, this physical separation, as he walks ahead going to what he knows is going to be a painful death. I also love um, in chapter 4, verse 38, when it describes the, the stilling of the storm. Uh, only Mark says this, that he was in the stern of the boat, asleep on a cushion, have a look. Only Mark says that. How does, he, how does he know? Well, Peter was there. Peter was there. He was there he was with Jesus, and he remembers. Yeah, I remember Jesus. He was asleep there, and his head was on a cushion, and he was asleep, and we were all petrified. Why? It's an eyewitness account that Mark is describing. And then the fifth thing that I'd like you to th- uh, think of as you are reading for yourself is that Mark records everything very simply. The style of his language is very simple. Um, so it's like, it's like almost like a child would tell a story. And You know, when, when, when um, children tell a story, they say, this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and then we went there, and this happened, and that happened. Have you ever been with a little child? So they can't get it out fast enough, and there's one thing after the other. Well, that's exactly how Mark writes. He writes in a very simple way, and in the original Greek, everything is connected with and, or immediately, or straight away. And those kind of phrases occur more than 30 times. There's a quick tempo to the gospel. It's like this happened and that happened, and straight away this happened, and then we did that, and then we did that, and then we did this. It's like he can't get it out quickly enough. And so that's what I'd also like you to look for. There's a pace to the writing, and uh, that's the way it's recorded. And the other detail is, is wonderful again, uh, something that only Mark does. He uses the original Aramaic language. Peter would have been one who would have known that language. And so when he speaks to Jairus's daughter, he uses this little phrase, Talitakum, which is an Aramaic phrase. Or the deaf, when he describes the deaf man with the speech impediment, he says, Epaphata, which is another Aramaic phrase. Or he uses well, the one that we all know. Mark is the only one who uses it. Um, where he says, in the garden, Jesus cries out in prayer. And he says, Abba, Father. There's this intimacy to his writing. On the cross, When he's been crucified, Mark says he cries out and he says, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabaktani," which is "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" In the Aramaic language. Only Mark is the one that records these details as Peter remembers and he writes down. It's almost like Peter can hear the very words and the sound of Jesus' voice, and so Mark is trying to capture that as he writes it. Right? Are you still with me? Okay. (laughs) Lastly. Why should we study the book? Why should we learn about Mark's gospel? Well, very simply, because it's part of God's word. It's part of God's understanding, his redemption story. And it's part of our responsibility to get to know it as best as we can so we can get to know Jesus as best as we can. And part of my underlying desire for, ongoing desire for this church is that we would get to know and love God's word that you would get to know and love God's Word for yourself, that that to read God's Word would become a delight to you, would become life to you, and that it would transform your life day by day as you read it. It is a concern for me that much of the church is becoming biblically illiterate. Much of the church is concerned with presentation and little messages that are no more than uh, a little encouragement or a simple kind of simplification of one of those TED Talks. Let me just say a couple of encouraging things. Let me choose a verse and say something encouraging to you. That's not biblical preaching. Biblical preaching is unpacking the Word of God line by line that you will get to know it. It It'll become life to you. And when someone asks you, you will have an answer because it's real to you on the inside. Amen? And so I want to encourage you to let the Word become life to you. And that's why we want to study it. And there's Obviously, all the reasons that I've tried to, to give in the last half an hour. But, but there's something else that concerns Mark much more. And this is going to be the, one of the great themes that we um, look at together. Mark is introducing his readers to the gospel. That's his purpose in writing. The beginning of the gospel. We read it in the, in the first verse. The beginning of the gospel, Jesus of the Christ, the Son of God. Something new is happening. That's what Mark wants us to get. Something is being birthed. Mark is writing down something for the first time. He's he's speaking of the good news in a radical way. And there's something even more significant than that. The word gospel really in the ancient world would have been like a sky-breaking news story. That's how the word gospel is used. So, for example, it was used to describe a world-changing event that was going to affect everybody. So, for example, when Emperor Augustus, was um, his announcement was made about him becoming emperor, it was shouted out as the gospel. This is the gospel. Emperor Augustus is emperor. In other words, this event is going to change the world now that Emperor Augustus has become emperor. And so Mark is writing down, and he's saying, no, this is the gospel that is going to transform the world. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is the breaking news story, not proroguing parliament, not Brexit. This is the breaking news story that is radically going to change your lives and the world forever. Let me tell you about Jesus and His message. That's what it is. That's the thing that Paul, that, um, see, I'm so much in the letters, not Paul. Mark is trying to communicate. He's writing down the first account of this amazing message, this good news of Jesus, and documenting it. And at the same time, he's announcing it as the transforming event that's going to shape the world forever. And at the center is this man called Jesus. And immediately he talks about Jesus. What does he do? You see in verse 2. He connects it back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah. And he says in verse 2, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that introduces him straight away to talk about John the Baptist who is seen as the prophet promise, promised in the Old Testament who precedes the, the coming of Messiah. And you can read that in verse uh, 4 to 8. It talks about John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, he wore leather belts around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right from the beginning, the announcement is actually pointing to Christ. Yes, John came, but he pointed us immediately to Jesus. And then... The next thing that Mark describes is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he makes it clear that it's nothing less than the kingdom of God that he's speaking about. He's saying this new thing is the kingdom of God. This new thing is an entirely new way of seeing the world, of seeing redemption. It's about God's kingdom. There's a new kingdom. And your response, your appropriate response to the declaration of this new kingdom is that you repent and you believe. Verse 14 and 15. And it says uh, there, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message, the picture of the Messiah and the, the message that he proclaims. And to, to kind of make the painting even more beautiful and even more amazing, what does Mark do? He doesn't just talk about the preaching, he talks about all the miracles. He shows, he says, There's a demonstration, this message, this Christ that has come, that is Messiah. He demonstrated His authority over all of these things, over sin and sickness and disease and even the natural world. He demonstrated that He is who He says He is by the miracles. And so you read in the first chapters of Mark, the first eight chapters of Mark, there's this rapid demonstration, one miracle after the other, one demonstration of power after the next. And it says, immediately and they come and they are taught. And it talks immediately after the, um, the preaching of healing and deliverance. And the response of the people is, we have never seen anything like this. Yes? Mark chapter 2, verse 12. I mean, the Pharisees, they've preached a lot. They've talked a lot. They've said what we should do and the law that we should follow. But we've never seen anything like this. Demonstration of God's authority and power over all these things. And I'm longing for that, to see that more and more through the ministry of this church, that we would see people healed and saved and delivered and set free. Not because we're clever preachers or we do things well. No, because of the power of Messiah here by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems to me that all these things, and the way that Mark writes and describes, they're all a necessary introduction to the big thing that Mark is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see the kingdom. He's trying to get us to see Messiah. And so it's not just about hearing, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But it's also, once you've heard that, that you do something about it. (laughs) All right? And my challenge to you and my challenge to me this year is what are we going to do with this great news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God? How are our lives going to demonstrate His power? How is it going to make a difference in your work community or me with the people that I interact with? What demonstration of life-transforming power is there going to be through my life for those that I know and love and through your life through those that you know and love? That's the point of Mark. It's not just about, oh, yes, we recognize Jesus as Messiah. What do we do with that? How How does it transform us? How does it shape us? How does it make a difference to our communities and our families? That's the most important thing. That's what He's trying to get us to see, and that's what we're going to explore as a leadership team. Who Jesus is uh, as a preaching team. It's about who Jesus is, and it's also about how we need to respond to Him to see His power be used in our lives in a life-transforming way for everyone that touches our lives. Amen? And so that's the basic material of the Gospel of Mark, and these are the themes we're going to unfold if we start to get a much clearer understanding of Mark's purpose in writing this amazing gospel. This first account, eyewitness account, written all those years ago. It can still bring life to us right now. So I want to encourage you in your devotions, read Mark. We're gonna read Mark for the next year. So start now, all right? Read Mark. Read Mark chapter one. And next week we're gonna look at some of the I'm going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 1 with the the other guys that are preaching. And once we get through chapter 1, we'll accelerate and go a little bit quicker. But uh, let's root ourselves. So get reading, all right? Enjoy reading and ask God to speak to you. Look for those things that I've tried to describe this morning. And it's going to be a delightful, wonderful um, time that we can spend in God's Word learning. And I'm trusting that it's going to empower us in a whole different way to reach out into our communities, our friends, our family, that this transforming power of Christ can be seen flowing through our lives, touching everybody. Amen.